This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I may not be the best chef, but I do know my way around a kitchen. I'm talking the paint swatches, the lighting, and the hand-painted ceramic dishware. It's the perfectly positioned bar stools, the vintage fabric-covered bench, and the reclaimed wood table. Ugh, the joy of a gorgeous kitchen. It just makes you want to whip out the Le Creuset, uncork the wine, and invite your friends over. All while wearing an oversized linen button-down and leather sandals. If this sounds like a scene out of a Diane Keaton or Meryl Streep movie, that's because it is. Writer and director Nancy Myers is famous for creating swoon-worthy kitchens on her film sets. They're integral to building her characters' specific backstories and story arcs. You can learn a lot about a person by the way they organize their spices or their insistence on napkin rings. If you think about it, The thoughtfulness and artistry that goes into great design is not dissimilar from the care and attentiveness that goes into great cooking. Both nourish in different ways, feeding the body and inspiring the imagination. It was Mary Oliver who once wrote, attention is the beginning of devotion, and nowhere is more attention paid than in the meticulous fulfillment of a grandmother's recipe or the intentional setting of an elegant table. Really, it's a way to show love. So if you're too romanced by a rack of hanging copper pots or a black and white checkerboard floor, you're in good company. I say they're pretty damn romantic. That was design enthusiast and Architectural Digest contributor Lenny Halpern with a love letter to beautiful kitchens. In the same way kitchen design can speak volumes, how food is presented can shape the way we interact with it. Just take a look at your phone. Today's world of social media is inundated with pictures of pretty food that make our mouths water. A picture is worth a thousand words, and looking good implies tasting good. Today we bring you an episode on the ways that food and style play off each other, from culinary photography to fashion to restaurant design. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First up, Anna Oaks explores changing trends in food styling. Have you ever seen those pictures from housekeeping magazines from the 1960s? Technicolor arrays of gelatinized food laid out in lavish, fantastical spreads. Deviled eggs, pigs in a blanket, and spam. Mass production technologies squeezing and squelching food into improbable forms and textures. But while that particular aesthetic of sculpted food once was the norm, things have changed. I think bathroom styling is when it looks really forced and really placed, where you can tell that things were moved around in a very even way, and you could almost pick out the red peppers stuck in that quinoa, you know? 
I think that that's terrible food styling when it just doesn't feel real. That's Mariana Velasquez. She's a food stylist originally from Colombia and the co-host of Buen Limon Radio on HRN. She's also the author of a recently published cookbook, Colombiana. Mariana works with a range of clients. For instance, I'll do a campaign for a big restaurant chain or for a big coffee company in Asia. And then I'll work with this great pate maker in Massachusetts. While the aesthetics of food styling have changed over the decades, the aim is similar. It's about preserving and selling what is at heart a transient moment. Food styling is how we create advertising for all kinds of food businesses, from restaurant websites to restaurant chains to products, uh, commercials, magazines, cookbooks. What I love about food styling and the work that I do is that I can make food, which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. How do you make something real look more real? It's about bringing the viewer into the sensory experience of the scene. You know, I want the person to look at that image and feel like they're there, that they can almost hear the music, that if there's flowers, there's a reason for flowers to be there, that they could almost taste and smell the food and the ambience. It's making it look real no matter what, and appetizing and delicious, you know, not dried out, not sad, not, not wilted. Mariana began her career as a food stylist in 2005. Just like clothing adjusts to trends, so does food styling. Back then, we were still transitioning from film photography to digital. And I remember that food was pretty perfect. It was pretty perfect looking. And there was that beginning of the beautiful mess kind of a thing that was starting to happen. That organic take where the appetite appeal wasn't the pie already cut into as opposed to the pie with the whipped cream perfectly piped with the cherry on top. In the past few years, I've seen everything from really messy lived in to very perfect and harsh light, almost like the kind of light that they use to photograph shoes and purses, you know, very strong highlights and very dramatic lighting. So it's an ever-changing look. Nowadays, the style veers towards naturalism, but the process itself is anything but. Food stylists go to great lengths to maintain a meticulous composition. I mean, I use tweezers, I use really good scissors, I use a little water spritzer, which always saves the day. And I love using the juices of the food itself to bring it back to life and and I don't, you know, I don't like using anything fake or any additives or anything. That way people can eat it afterwards. Picture a food photography shoot. How many people are there? Maybe one person holding lights, a stylist tinkering with the food, and a photographer? Not necessarily. In a big shoot like that, there's very many layers of people. There's the agency, there are creative directors, there are producers, there are photographers or videographers, there's directors and then a whole array of people in my team. But not all shoots come with an entourage. The team is me. (laughs) Sometimes I'll have a friend or two assist uh, in eating, but 
I would say a majority of the time it's me because people have real nine to five jobs. Ben Hahn is a food photographer and a social media manager. He works primarily on Instagram, where restaurants sponsor him to photograph food and share pictures with his 59,000 followers. The vibrant food photography scene on Instagram points to larger shifts in how the job might be changing. Whereas food styling may have been a traditionally hierarchical industry in the past, social media opens up a more accessible field. Ben, for instance, is self-taught. I got my first camera and started learning on my own. I never took any classes or anything. I just kept shooting, and here I am today as a photographer. <laughs> According to Ben, his aim is to represent the food as it already is. My goal is to just take the, the nicest photos to represent their food and their space, and to share that. You know, New York is is one of the toughest cities to have a restaurant, and you know, if there's any way I can help in, in a small way, that's my goal. These days, in both traditional food styling and on Instagram, people seem to gravitate to pictures that seem more genuine or familiar. So there's a preference away from, say, novelty ramen burgers and towards actual bowls of ramen. Yeah, you could have the most beautifully plated dish from a three-star Michelin restaurant, and it might not perform as well. But I could have like a a sloppy plate of spaghetti, and it'll perform like ridiculously well. People love noodles or pasta. I don't know why. It just It's so weird. Weird or not, the photos harness a feeling of nostalgia and comfort. In the case of restaurant photography, the goal is to sell that emotional experience to customers. But during COVID, photographers and stylists had to adapt. I shot a lot more at home, so I would have to plate everything on my own plateware and everything. So that was challenging. I have a very uh, tiny apartment with like one window in the living room, so at drag everything over by the window and set up this mock tabletop, right? And style everything. Restaurants also had to change their messaging. Now you can take this food home and serve it at your place. And I feel like we saw so much more food photography being posted everywhere on the internet. And people who didn't cook now were cooking and shooting what they were cooking. And so that inevitably sort of changes the perspective and the perception of what food looks like and what's appetizing, if everybody's doing it, right? As readers or Instagram swipers, we're transported by a tranquil, beautifully composed layout of lunch on a sunny afternoon. We don't see what's behind the scenes. Maybe it's one photographer leaning over a makeshift scene in their living room, or cascades of assistants and photographers and agents running around with tweezers, lighting equipment, and spritzers. Though Mariana doesn't use hairspray, I asked. In our next story, Dylan Hoyer takes a look at the intersection of good drinks and good style with Julia Bainbridge. Julia Bainbridge's style is colorful, elegant, and bold. And I'm not just talking about her fashion sense, but her beverage sensibility as well. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Julia is the author of Good Drinks, a book that frames itself as a, quote, serious and stylish look at sophisticated non-alcoholic beverages. Her wardrobe actually served as a source of inspiration for the book. The designer for my book, Mike Lee, he drew from my closet, actually, and, and how I dressed at the time as a starting point for the visual mood board for the book. 
this kind of classic laid back sophistication, but with a wild visual side, <laughs> you know, like bright patterns on top of one another, dressed up or down. Taking a peek inside Julia's closet is a chance to learn something about her personality. Most of our styles are informed by all kinds of things we've been exposed to. For me, that's the privilege I've had of traveling around the world, of living in New York and watching the peacocks on the streets, you know? I think um, queer fashion here, like bondage, is really inspiring to me. I'm, of course, informed by my upbringing as well. So I come from a place where people dress sort of classic, preppy, you know, seersucker was part of the culture. She allows experience, occasion, and emotion to dictate her taste. My style is no one thing, but I think the same kind of eclecticism is represented in the drinks in the book. Sometimes you drink to relax, to connect, to let loose, to toast the end of the day. You know, there are bright agua frescas, there are tiki-style drinks, there's a more austere-looking champagne-inspired beverage. Julia's love for experimenting with food and fashion collided in promoting her book when she decided to pair drink recipes with different outfits, like this. There's a, a pea flower tea drink that turns from, from blue to purple when you add acid. And for that, I had this vintage Marnie coat. So it was this purple coat um, with flowers on it, a sort of deep purple. And then I had a silk floor length pale purple dress from H&M and paired that with some blue uh, chunky heels and just a blue, you know, like beanie cap. This project caught my eye immediately. Its appeal was just intuitive. I may not be as aesthetically inclined as Julia Bainbridge, but it was an Instagram-worthy moment the day my crocheted mustard color sweater matched my Nectar Le Creuset mug. It's just pure fun, which I think is a lot of the book too, right? Like it's just fun to labor over these drinks and really like put some care into making something delicious for yourself to enjoy. These are not um, performance beverages, right? They're all about pleasure. I know I'll be chasing this feeling and maybe you'll delight in following suit. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. 
Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet in Three. Next up, Caroline Fox dives into the world of upcycling and learns how one artist is giving her favorite foods a second life in her wardrobe. It's Friday night in New York, and the city is bustling. After spending basically the past year and a half stuck inside my apartment in sweatpants, it's time for me to take to the streets in an eye-catching outfit. Do I wear my vest made entirely from Eggo waffles? And maybe something underneath, like a bra sewn from two fresh croissants? For shoes, I think I'll stick with my Capri Sun sandals. For comfort, of course. Okay, sadly, this edible closet isn't actually my reality. Instead, it belongs to sustainable designer and artist Nicole McLaughlin. I'm a designer based in Brooklyn, New York, and I do what is called upcycling. So I take things that are existing in the world today, things that we would probably assume are trash or things that we wouldn't really deem valuable in any way and use them for projects. And so I'll rework them and find a new way to use it, a new context for it. And it's a lot of fun. Nicole's art is definitely an out-of-the-box kind of fun. All those articles of edible clothing I mentioned are part of her unique collection of sustainable designs, which aim to change the perception around waste. But for Nicole, Upcycling and sustainability also extend into the world of food. Personally, I love food. Like, I love eating. I am Italian, so <laughs> naturally grew up with my mom just, like, feeding me all day. And so when I started making my weird and interesting projects, um, I was mainly using material from thrift stores and that kind of stuff. But then it started to stem even further into, like, packaging. And so I would be you know, just going through my recycling bin at my house and starting to use that. And then it then turned into like, well, what would happen if I use the food for a project and had this food like on my body in some way, but also maintain like the eatability? Is that a word? But like to be able to then just use it for the project and then take it off and then be able to actually enjoy it after. And so giving food another use. When working with food, Nicole won't glue, paint, or alter it in any way. But food is a difficult medium to work with, and holding on to that eatability can be a real challenge. One of my first projects that I used real food that was like from the oven was bread. And I figured out a way to take like almost a string. Um, kind of like the baker's string that they like wrap the boxes with. I took that and was finding ways to like feed it through the bread to create like a structure. So it actually had like an entire just like woven structure inside of the bread. And it was really heavy, but I was able to wear it and make it a vest. And so that was really like a huge one of my probably one of my most challenging projects in terms of like structural because like usually you can sew things together or like you know shoes you can use glues and that kind of stuff but like I, I knew from the start that I never wanted to like hot glue 
bread onto my body. <laughs> like I wanted to be able to enjoy it after. And I did. And it was actually, that was probably one of the most like inspiring things because from there that informed a lot of the food projects. Once food crosses the line from edible to wearable, it's Nicole's responsibility to make sure she's not just creating more waste through her art. Using food in a new context isn't just to wow her 630,000 Instagram followers either. Instead, it's become a lesson in possibilities and helping her audience explore the potential of pre-existing items. I've been trying my best to find ways to raffle off to generate some revenue and donate it to various different charities. And so um, recently we did one and it was a local uh, organization called Food for Fam. And we raised a couple thousand dollars and were able to get uh, food from local farmers. And so I think those are the types of things that I'm really hoping for in the future with this type of work to be able to just generate awareness and dollars and put it towards amazing things and hopefully feed people too. So (laughs) it all kind of connects in a way. If there's one thing food and fashion have in common, it's waste. With changing style trends and palettes, sometimes we end up tossing things faster than we can consume them. In a way, upcycling projects like Nicole's serve as a reminder of the shelf life our favorite products have after we kick them to the curb. The experience of dining out is about more than just the food. It's about the ambiance, the flow, the feel of a restaurant. It's about how an environment can somehow turn eating into an almost artistic experience. It's about how each restaurant, big or small, tells a story. On episode five of All in the Industry, we hear from Glenn Coben, an architect and designer who found over the course of his career that his true passion was restaurants. But as he explained, one of the most formative jobs of his career was with Nike. With Nike, what I really learned was you could tell multiple stories in a three-dimensional way. And I've taken that with me in pretty much every, every place that I've gone from that point forward. For years, Glenn was a principal architect at the Rockwell Group, a large corporate architecture firm where he gained a lot of experience and a solid footing in the world of design. But my true breakthrough in, in opening up my own firm was pure happenstance. I got a call from somebody that I knew who said, hey, I know this chef. He is looking for an architect and a designer. He doesn't want to go to the big guys. Uh, Would you be interested in meeting him? The chef was Jonathan Waxman, one of the first true celebrity chefs, known for his trendy 80s restaurant, Jams. When Jams closed in the early 90s, Waxman took a decade-long break from the business. Glenn was being asked to design his restaurant comeback story. It was called Washington Park, and it was the first restaurant he'd ever designed. The neat thing about that restaurant is that when you walked in the door, you walked down three or four, maybe five steps, and the kitchen was at the end of that that sort of vista. And it was almost as if it was a stage. And it was kind of like this weird, put Jonathan on stage, and he was coming back into the big time. And um, it was a beautiful restaurant. It really... We captured the essence of California cuisine. The project was part of what inspired Glenn to open his own boutique firm in 2000. What I truly love about the restaurant industry is that we're focusing on each project as if it's its own story. It has to be. So 
the chef that we're working with or the restaurateur that we're working with on a current project, it's their story. It's not my story. It's not somebody else's story. So each time we come to a project, we're starting with what is the essence of their idea? What is the essence of their menu? Where is their cuisine coming from? And then how do we relate it to the space? His firm, Glenn & Co., has grown a lot since it first opened, but it's still a boutique architecture and design firm and still allows Glenn to do what he loves most. What better than to hang out with chefs um, or restaurateurs and hear their story, hear their lives, and try and make it a three-dimensional place that doesn't overshadow the food but truly complements the dining experience. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we covered this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Anna Oakes, Dylan Hoyer, Caroline Fox, Sasha Cohen, and Tao Viduong. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hi, you can write to us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.